The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. We are joined by a man who lives at the corners of journalism and music. David Was is the name he goes by in the world of music, and he's the stage brother and other half of the writing producing collaboration Was Not Was. With his friend Don Was, they formed the band Was Not Was, and he's a Detroit, Michigan native. His journey into the public sphere began as a journalist and jazz writer. David Was has made a big mark in the music world. In addition to the work of his band Was Not Was, he's worked with the likes of Bob Dylan, Mel Torme, Iggy Pop, Ricky Lee Jones, Roy Orbison, and many others. And going back to the journalism, under his given name, David Weiss, his byline has appeared in Entertainment Weekly, Rolling Stone, and Newsweek, just to name a few. Whether you call him David Was or David Weiss, he's here. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thanks for having me here. Thanks, Paul. My pleasure. So, I think most stories are best from the beginning. If you could paint a picture with words, what a typical day was like in the Weiss house. Well, that is the seminal question. We were definitely uh, the outliers in the neighborhood, and in general, I'd say in a mid-century Jewish suburb of Detroit, we were kind of uh, the bohos, given that my parents were both uh, theater arts stage actors. They were graduates of the Wayne State University program, which at the time was one of the more famous theater programs with Carnegie and uh, Juilliard. So it made them eminently qualified to fail upward in the world into being (laughs) radio and television talent. My dad in particular was a regular on local, locally produced uh, radio dramas like Lone Ranger and Green Hornet, which a lot of people don't know took place in Detroit. And so I grew up in recording studios, including the one that really got my interest, which was a famous place if you're from Detroit, but even beyond called United Sound. And I would go in there to listen to my dad cut a commercial or I was cutting a commercial myself because there were five of us kids and they were always casting for youngins in these commercials. And I'd wind up at United Sound and see a studio set up with for 40 pieces. And it was, they were Motown sessions. I think one day that I was there, I think they were cutting me and Mrs. Jones, which always stood as one of my favorites. But the short answer is steeped in that atmosphere. I couldn't imagine ever being part of the regular workaday world. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, I used to joke, my dad would leave the house three times a week with no time card to be punched. He'd talk into a sponge covered tube for 20 minutes and come home in a Cadillac. (laughs) And that was kind of dangerous because it made me think that the entire world was rubber coated or foam 
lined and that if you fell, you laughed because the world was such an easy egg to crack and that merely following your muse and being creative would probably seize the day. But as fate would have it, I met a more practical-minded sort, Don Faganson, nay, Don was, whose parents were workaday. Uh, his dad was a school counselor and his mother was a teacher. And this kid actually had a work ethic, <laughs> which uh, combined with my dreaminess and fixation on words made for a pretty dynamic partnership as soon as we met because Don was already working and studying music and buying unsophisticated followed by more sophisticated recording machines, which means a Radio Shack recorder followed by, I'm not sure if you'll remember this, Paul, but a Revox reel-to-reel machine. And it was kind of like as good as you could do for home recording at the time. And Don started to be a uh, track bouncer. You know, you'd record in stereo, then mix two tracks down to one and have the other track open. And as such, you could multi-track at home at a time when the Beatles and George Martin were experimenting with those Ampex machines that had four tracks, and they would do the same thing on a slightly bigger scale. So melding my uh, cerebellum to Don's uh, ob- oblongata or something <laughs> made for like one potent partnership because he knew how to get things done, and he was an accomplished musician already in his teens, And, you know, I was sitting around reading Lord Byron and E.E. Cummings, and somehow we we planted the seeds that would later become Was Not Was. What is your earliest memory from meeting Don Was, when you first, the two of you first came together? Well, there's a legend attached, which I've told so many times. It's like being Donald Trump. You don't know whether you're telling the truth or not anymore because you've repeated (laughs) it so often. (laughs) I think it's true, though. I mean, I kind of knew who he was. He was this kind of wiry-haired guy who had a kind of charismatic. But it took us both getting into trouble in junior high. I believe it was eighth grade gym class where... We were strictly forbidden from playing on the gym equipment for, what was it, the tumbling uh, unit or uh, acrobatics, whatever the heck, gymnastics, I think it was. And so some kid on a given morning, when we were all goofing on the equipment before the teacher came in, fell and broke his wrist. And the teacher came in and said, who else was on this equipment this morning? And if my eyes darted in Don's direction and he in mine, I didn't notice, but we were both among the liars who didn't raise our hand. (laughs) And so I think it was within an hour that we were in the antechamber waiting for judgment when some guy, in fact, I know it was, it was Bob Mooney Krupkin was responsible for the beginning of Was Not Was because he ratted us out. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) We both wound up outside Mr. 
Callaway's office waiting to be reprimanded. In fact, they suspended us for the rest of the unit, which was fine because I couldn't tumble worth a damn, frankly. So uh, we started in cr- as partners in crime, literally and figuratively, perjury in the uh, courtroom of junior high school gym class was what led us to the waiting room outside Mr. Calloway's office. And there it began. Very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And what about the music that you all mutually liked? Were there certain places where you guys intersected and maybe not? That's interesting. Yeah. You know, He was ahead of the curve, I would say, because he was studying with a local guy who actually had some jazz chops. So he was playing chords beyond the usual musician's ken, that is major, minor, and sevenths. So if you were studying with a jazz guy, you'd probably already learned about flatted fifths and major sevenths and stuff like that. And so he had an interest in jazz, which... I had developed only slightly because of the extent of my parents' record collection, which I remember I would play certain things over and over again. Rossini's William Tell Overture, because it was the theme for The Lone Ranger. (laughs) And I, I would play this one record they had, which happened to be the Massey Hall concert that Bird did, I think in 1940, I want to say 45 or six, but it was basically Bird and I think Dizzy and uh, whoever else was in that band then, Mingus, I'm not sure, Max Roach. There was something about the energy of that music that had seized me and I didn't even know what I was listening to. But... By turns, as we realized, Don and I and one other friend from junior high had this interest in music beyond what was coming out of our local radio station, which happened to be a pop powerhouse out of Windsor, Ontario, Canada, CKLW, which was really, if you wanted to break a record in those days, that was one of the seminal stations. And so... Between CKLW's influence and listening to whatever rock and roll was afoot and our interest in jazz, which took us to attending concerts at the uh, local basketball arena for the Detroit Pistons, Kobo Arena, where George Wein, W-E-I-N, the producer of the Newport Jazz Festival, would travel with an anthology of artists from the festival every year. And even if you didn't go to Rhode Island, you could go and experience basically the best the jazz world had to offer. So that's when our parents would drop us off downtown when Detroit wasn't such a lethal experience. You could drop 13-year-olds off and let them go here, Coltrane and Monk and Miles and uh, Keith Jarrett and Herbie Hancock. I mean, we basically heard everybody and even had the wherewithal to go backstage and try to say hello, which uh, best result was tapping on uh, the limo window of Dizzy Gillespie, who took a brief glance, lowered his power window, and then offered his 
hand parallel to the ground for us to slap. <laughs> and I still haven't washed. I mean, that was, uh, that was like meeting God. In fact, to tell you the truth, in an era that was dominated by the Beatles, the Stones, Bob Dylan, etc., etc., to me, Miles Davis was by far uh, the more compelling artist, just because I think it was so much harder to be Miles Davis than it was to be Bob Dylan, both in terms of race and in terms of the artistic vision that it took not to diss Dylan, who I have a tremendous fondness for, but to me, rock and roll guys were not existential heroes on par with a Miles Davis who who had to pay real-world dues along with his artistic dues. And I think it's what made him of interest to a French existentialist like Jean-Paul Sartre, that there was something lived in, engaged with his time, and paid for, both on an artistic and a, um, how would you say, existential level. You know, if if uh, if the cops took away your cabaret card in New York City in the 40s or 50s, it meant you couldn't feed yourself or you had to pawn your horn like Lee Morgan had to do. So we would await every Miles Davis record with equal, if not greater, anticipation then we reserve for whatever the Beatles were going to be up to next. If you could put it into words, what do you like about jazz music? Well, that's a great question because it's evolved. I realize now what I liked about it initially was that it was mercurial in the sense, almost literally, that when you put your thumb on it, it moved away from you. It was hard to define. I couldn't have told you when we were listening to it at the time anything technical about it. Don may have been able to. All I knew is that there was something, there was something, I guess you'd call it like ineffable. There was something so hard to pin down and the fact that like a guy standing at home plate with the bases loaded and two out, like you either produced in that moment, responded to the pressure of inventing on the spot or forever hold your peace, which reminds me, Charles Mingus, when he was leading his band in the 60s, there was a story told of him that he put down his bass and went and stood next to the sax player while he was soloing and said, play something. In other words, like put up or shut up now, here and now. Whereas, and I'm just free associating here, in pop music, and I suppose, you know, even for some of the luminaries in the jazz world, Ella Fitzgerald or whomever, if you were known for something, people came to hear you do that. And God forbid, you shouldn't do it like you did it on the record, or they'd leave disappointed. So Bob Dylan, who I still have tremendous respect and sympathy for, you go to hear his concerts now, and you will not hear a semblance of a melody that he wrote 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 
because he's not interested in being that repetition of himself, which I think speaks well for his his boredom threshold. He didn't want to be that Bob Dylan. He didn't want to be in the first place. But with these jazz guys, what you paid for was what I've always quoted the poet Ezra Pound having told his poet contemporaries back in the 20s, a three-word dictum that should guide all of their work, which was make it new. By all means, don't be a neoclassicist and ape the habits and, and formal habits of your forebears because that's nothing but mimicry or, as we say in music, minstrelsy. So that brings me to one of the bigger points about music and art in general, which I always thought was the most fascinating thing, is that you are required as an artist, whether you're working in the guild in the 15th century and, you know, emulating your master, be he Leonardo or someone else, you're required to learn it as they learned it, to imitate them stroke by stroke. But should you last through that harsh apprenticeship to emerge with a voice of your own, that's what's known as being an artist, which is why it doesn't require a capital A to describe the artist's life, because it's no different than any other kind of work, except that if you stick with it long enough, as in anything, whether you're a physicist or a poet or a mathematician, your voice or your individual fingerprint will eventually emerge from those years of slavish devotion to the laws of whatever it is that you're pursuing. So can I give you one example? Sure. So Bob Dylan, like so many before him, like Hank Williams before him, were simply a mirror and an echo of what was going on presently in music. And for Dylan, who was a pretty cosmopolitan guy, pretending to be a little shucks and rustic and more folk than he really was, that meant being Woody Guthrie. Forget about being John Malkovich. Bob Dylan could do Woody Guthrie like Rich Little did Jimmy Stewart back in the day. So like any good artist, what he did first was faithfully reproduce what was out there. Note for note, phrase by phrase, the talking blues that Dylan did were different in kind, but not in, or shall we say different in spirit, but not in kind from what Woody Guthrie had done. But I give Dylan this credit. This guy was such a sponge was so sensitive to what was going on and he had these kind of literary chops to go with it. He was, he was the last of the unpublished beat poets, friend of Ginsburg channeling the spirit of freedom, rebellion, anarchy, etc. into, uh, and maybe this is the big difference into 
quatrains with rhymes instead of just being pure free verse with no rhymes and no discernible meter. So Dylan emerged from his minstrelsy phase to establishing himself as the new paradigm because he added this element of his own personality, aesthetic preferences, his his literary bent to a tradition that before then had been more, I'd say, not simple, because that denies folk all of its power, but there was less cosmopolitan, let's say. And I would say that that obtains that same rule for any artist with salt, whether it's Miles Davis or Stravinsky or anyone else. But just because I name-checked Stravinsky, I will say this. I remember reading some musicologist whose analysis of Stravinsky far surpassed anything I could have reckoned on my own. And maybe it was true and maybe it wasn't, but it was an object lesson in how to avoid one's artistic downfall. What he said was, when Stravinsky debuted The Rite of Spring in Paris at the Opera House in 1912 or 13, that the top hats rioted. People thought this is not music. They might have well have been listening to uh, noise from a construction yard. It just, the notes weren't in the right place. The rhythms were all over the place. It wasn't Brahms. And they came for a nice digestible evening after their dinner. And so this revolutionary who knew that he'd piss people off survived somehow that evening, that debacle, and went on to create a great body of work. However, by the 1940s, late 40s, said this musicologist, he had begun to imitate the ways of the younger Stravinsky, which the world had become unaccustomed to. The Rite of Spring sounded like Jackie Gleason's music for lovers at that point. It was middle of the road. So what this musicologist said is Stravinsky became the guy who he knew the public could digest. And he went into a retrograde, retrograde phase artistically. And so finally, this is the peril in art is the quicksand of earning the public's approbation and then doing what you think it is they want you to do rather than pushing forward and saying, screw them if they don't keep up with me. Very interesting. And on that note, what you were just talking about with doing what you want to do and doing what you think the public wants to do, when you all were forming, the band was not was. Was it more you all trying to enjoy yourselves and pursue your own artistic vision, or was it more, what does the public want? That is, that is a good question, and I would give Don credit for knowing that there was something, just like I would say Dylan knew that there was something going on in hinterlands that was of burgeoning interest that perhaps was a comer. And in this case, 
I think Don's notion was that we could make dance music that was an answer to the sort of the, what am I trying to say? The, the over the top exotic flourishes of the disco era. So if you made music at the tempos, the DJs in the clubs could play seamlessly after the last dance track, but minus all the strings and the background girls and everything else, that maybe there was an opening to do something within that genre, dance music. So our first two records, which... <laughs> I don't know if you know this origin story. I'll make it very brief. I was a jazz critic, as you said at the time, and enjoying my life, meeting Miles Davis and Dizzy and Sarah Vaughn and everyone else. And Don was slugging it out in the clubs in Detroit, playing bass in a cocktail lounge and having to play The Shadow of Your Smile eight times a week for these drunks in the shadow of a General Motors tank assembly plant in Warren, Michigan. Not a real dream gig, which finally, when his wife had a kid and he couldn't make ends meet, that's when he called me in L.A. and said, listen, man, if you don't come home and cut a record with me, I'm going to go rob a dry cleaners, he told me. (laughs) He told me he'd found one with a particularly helpless teenage girl at the register. So I said, all right, well, hang on, hang on for a second. I did fly home. We borrowed like 400 bucks from my dad, hired some local musicians who happened to be on playing on George Clinton records, which was right up our alley. We loved George Clinton from the time he'd appeared in our junior high school with the parliaments doing, I want to testify. And of course we were Motown guys. So, you know, black music meant everything to us. White music, a little less so, although we had fondness for Beatles, Dylan, stones probably but anyway we went i went back to detroit and we cut these two dance records and uh one of them was called wheel me out which was just some indecipherable sci-fi lyric that my mother again the voiceover actress delivered the vocal on it was a spoken vocal over this dance beat with some horn line that i played that became the melody Wheel me out, wheel me out. And wouldn't you know, this dumbass record. Oh, wait, I should tell you too. When we sent the demo out to record companies, it was accompanied by a letter from a critic at a major newspaper in Los Angeles. That would be myself, David Weiss. I used the stationery to say, very few times in my career, which parentheses was about four months at that point, I've been <laughs> critic. I said, very rarely is it that I come across talent like this, this new band was not was. And some character in New York, Michael Zilka of Z Records, Z-E, who had signed Kid Creole and the Coconuts and a few other crazy acts, only listened to it, he said, because of the letter. Otherwise, he'd have thrown our cassette tape demo away. And long story short, he loved it, came and signed us, put out Wheel Me Out. And 
I don't know if it was within a year or what of that, that we were enjoined to now have to create a whole album. But by the time that came out, I really don't know how it happened, but we were on the cover of Melody Maker and, and NME, New Musical Express in London, because this club sound that we were skating around the edges of had become kind of a thing. So it was almost by accident, but it was also, I think, Don's keen eye and ear that there was a slight opening for our kind of madness in the dance world that probably didn't exist in pop radio, certainly in the shape we were in then. (laughs) (laughs) That is very, very impressive that you would... I like the... I don't know what the word would be. Kind of like chutzpah of sending <laughs> sending the letter. Wow. Well, you know, I have spoken to a few groups of students here and there over the years, and I say, you know, when the time comes for you to get your moment where people are going to judge your work, first you got to get in this big ironclad locked door, which has seven padlocks on it. And if you're not willing to do whatever it takes short of murder to get through that door, deception, white lies, whatever it is, because if you reel this whole story back, and uh, I won't even go into how I got my gig as a jazz writer, that too required some daring do and deception. But if you reel it all back and things happen slightly differently, that's when you use that analogy about the beating of a butterfly's wings somewhere in Calcutta affecting the flight of a 747 taking off from Newark, that everything affects everything. And so call it kismet, fate, or luck, but I believe it is a kind of concatenation of all these events that had they not taken place just as they did, the same result wouldn't have obtained. So I think that both should plant a seed of hope in the hearts of artists who feel they'll never be acknowledged or discovered and also be a, a, a fair warning that if you don't batten down the hatches and do everything required to get yourself heard, you won't be heard. Certainly, it, it takes more than just being good at what you do. I would say. Hmm. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, this career in journalism and you being a, a writer about jazz, you had to have met some very fascinating characters with a gig like that. Yeah. To me, I realized in retrospect with a liberal arts degree from the University of Michigan that, uh, you know, I'd learned to write definitely. And I learned to read, you know, and I knew what I liked. I liked Greek tragedy and I liked uh, Shakespeare and I liked Homer and I liked Dostoevsky and I liked some French novelists like Andre Gide. But, but when I got out into the world and had to work, thank God, I could write about what I loved and that I would get to meet weekly 
one of these characters because I was responsible for doing an interview or a feature almost every week for a couple of years. And happily at that time, some of the avatars of my youth were still around and in some cases still creative. So I'll give you a short list to begin with of the people that I sat with, and then I'll give you one example of the guy who really blew my mind. But I sat with Sonny Rollins and Dexter Gordon, McCoy Tyner, Elvin Jones, Freddie Hubbard. Didn't get to meet Duke Ellington, but Dizzy Gillespie and Herbie Hancock, onward and onward. And so what I realized in retrospect, even though Don and I created this band while I still had the get day gig being a jazz writer, was that I was in grad school, that I'd gone from being a liberal arts pansy, like a million different guys with a little poetry and a little this and that, to studying what I've now dubbed the psychology of aesthetics. In other words, from meeting 50 of these people, I started to put a portrait together in my head of what it was that made, quote, an artist tick. And I'll tell you, it's not an easy common denominator to process because you both meet people who you think are a little crazy and perhaps, quote, not so smart in the classical sense of, you know, Einstein or Bertrand Russell or something. But then it occurred to me that neither sanity nor intelligence per se were required if in your resume to be a great artist. In fact, it was good to be a little crazy and smart like a fox, but not in terms of book learning, even though the guy I'm about to mention as the most revealing uh, encounter that I had, Miles Davis, did go to Juilliard, let's not forget. He was not an unlettered musician. He, 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 he knew the rules. So that, of course, me meeting Miles Davis finally became, for me, I don't know, kind of the culmination of all these teen dreams of wanting to meet your mentors, which Bob Dylan had warned against, by the way. Bob Dylan met Woody Guthrie finally when Guthrie was ill and I think was about to die and then made up some rule about don't try to meet your mentors because you're bound to come away a little disappointed. But if I haven't gone on too long, I'll give you the brief circumstances of how Miles and I came together. Please do. Okay, so I had had my first child, and he was turning one, and he was going to turn one under the surgeon's knife to correct a heart defect. Which, thank God, he's alive and well today. It all went very well. But at the time, I was on my knees in a godless universe, hoping all would turn out well. And I had an interview with Miles Davis scheduled, who was coming out of retirement, they said, which basically meant, if you knew Miles's career at the time, that he had licked his drug habit once again in order to be able to go out and play again. 
And so prior to his appearance at the Hollywood Bowl out here in Los Angeles, I was to interview him and it would run on the front page of the Herald Examiner as a Q&A. So I up miles after coming home from the hospital with my kid out of the woods, thank God. And the first thing Miles said to me in that voice, which you've heard a million guys imitate, he said, how's your boy? And I said, oh, thank you, Miles. He's, he's doing good, et cetera, et cetera. Long story short, we did what I thought was an amazing interview, 40 minutes long, him talking about Charlie Parker, him talking about his past. He was just an open book. I think he was just being nice to me because my kid was having this life-threatening surgery. But wouldn't you know, Paul, that uh, I blew the recording apparatus. I hope you're not, but I did. It happened. Oh, my God. It wasn't running in the spare bedroom, even though I hooked everything up with alligator clips on the leads coming out of the phone, etc. So I had to call him back. And I said, Miles, I... <laughs> I don't want to even tell you. I blew it. I, I didn't. It didn't record. And his answer was, "You're supposed to know that shit." <laughs> I said, "I know. I know." Could we redo it? And he said, "I can't do it right now. Call me tomorrow morning." I called the next day, and he wasn't there. I thought I just screwed up, major. I, I will not get this interview, and I blow the front page. When my phone rang, and the voice said. I'm going to make you famous, David. And I said, what? He said, can you get my picture on the cover of the Rolling Stone? <laughs> and I, I sort of got that he was needling me. I said, uh, yes, of course, Miles, whatever you want. Yeah, let's go. Long story short, he was kind enough to give me 20 minutes, just enough to get this piece out. I'll never forgive myself because I blew the good interview. It gave me a good chunk of time before. And it ran in the paper and all was well. And I was required to go to the show and review the Hollywood Bowl come out of retirement party for Miles Davis. So here's the coda to this almost tragic story is that that night at the Hollywood Bowl, there's an opening act and it happens to be Miles' longtime arranger and orchestrator, Gil Evans, who was performing under his own baton as the Gil Evans Orchestra. But wouldn't you know that Miles, sitting around antsy backstage or whenever he decided to do it, decided he wasn't going to be waiting around for some guy playing a set. He would open the show for the opener. <laughs> which I understood he did historically. I learned later, but I thought, God, what, how uncharitable to leave the trimmings for his oldest collaborator while people were walking out at intermission because they'd seen Miles Davis already. So I constructed this argument in my review of Miles by saying that Miles just came out and shattered, bear with me, all of the Aristotelian unities of time and place that he described in his book, The Poetics. That is, if you walked into a performance of Hamlet and the curtain rose 
and Hamlet and his mother and her husband, the usurper of the throne, were laying dead on the stage, you probably wouldn't hang around to see what was going to happen in the third act because you knew the ending already, right? So I said, I said, how does this guy get away with rending these unities of time and place and yet being so compelling? And I answered myself by saying, because here is a guy whose charisma and appeal is so great that all he has to do is walk to the front of the stage and lift his sunglasses above his eyes, and he gets an amazing ovation. And then, here's the end of this. Musically speaking, at the time, he had hired all these young players who could play their asses off. Mike Stern on guitar, really a rock and roll guitarist. Saxophonist Bill Evans, not the pianist, but the saxophonist. And a couple other guys, I forget who it was, but anyway, they would play their tails off, note after note. And Miles would come out to solo and he'd go, in other words, only playing the notes necessary to communicate what it was he had to communicate. And I added to maintain this DC connection to the root of all evil in jazz, that is the blues. So the brevity and the succinctness of the blues still, at the end of the day, informed what notes Miles Davis was playing. In other words, being Miles Davis, I think I said in the piece, means not having to cover every inch of rhythmic space but only to play what was necessary for the means of expression. Okay, last act is that review runs the following morning in the paper, and my phone rings at about 8 in the morning. And it was that voice again, and he said these words verbatim. Yeah, I, uh, I read that right up. And I said, oh. I said, well, how was it? And he said... You wrote it, weren't you there? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, I was there. I was there, Miles. Uh, and then he paused, and without saying much, he said these words, and these are the ones that killed me. You might as well have roped me and branded me cool on my forehead to be seen by people for the rest of my life, because his next words were, yeah. I, I dug that right up, all in all. He says, I want you to write the liner notes for my next record. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> now, this is, a man, this is a man who famously, on the record, had always excoriated, if not hated, white jazz critics. And somehow, I'm not even sure how, but I'd touched a nerve. I'd said something that, I guess, aligned with his vision of himself. I don't know what. So if I haven't gone on too long, do you want the ending to this thing? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I had the nerve at that point, never having met him in person, to say, so uh, you're still local? Would, would you mind if I came by and said hello? And he gave me his address, Beverly Hills Hotel, and he 
told me when to come over in a couple of hours. And I showed up in the lobby and they called up to get him. And he came down and uh, he was wearing gold chains and drinking from a Perrier bottle from the bottle. He just looked out of place in this Beverly Hills hotel. But he looked at me and the first words were, I thought you had a beard. <laughs> okay. All right. He's playing with me, right? But uh, anyway, I gave him a gift. I gave him uh, the work of uh, a double CD of a guy named Simon Barrere, B-A-R-E-R-E. He was a uh, classical pianist who died on stage in Carnegie Hall of his third cerebral hemorrhage while playing the Greek piano concerto. And who, if you follow the history of 20th century classical pianists, was the Charlie Parker of the classical pianist. He was the fastest, but also the singingest, most musical guy who, had he lived, might have been spoken of the way we spoke of Horowitz and Rubinstein. But no one knew of him because he died in 52. So I gave Miles this CD, and then we stood around making small talk, and it got smaller and smaller. I, I know small talk turns into micro talk, turns into nano talk, which is where we were at this point. At which point we're standing outside the hotel, and I know he's waiting for his nephew Vince to come and drive him around, and his red Ferrari is standing uh, sitting on the curb outside the hotel. So having run out of anything significant to say to Miles Davis, I made the error of a lifetime by asking the stupidest question in the world. His answer to which proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that we were living in different universes. He was cool and I was not. So my question to him gesturing toward his car was, so uh, how's that thing? <laughs> and he looked at me sideways with disdain in his voice and he answered that ain't no thing that's it <laughs> <laughs> and I gotta tell you I like the wicked witch of the west after they poured water on it I dissolved on the sidewalk into a pool of ill-fitting clothes and flowed back to my lousy car and drove home <laughs> I just thought you know what? I could have been cool, but I blew it. And uh, <laughs> Thankfully, he forgave me. I went and had lunch with him at his house in Malibu once. And I tried to get him to play on my Ricky Lee Jones record, but uh, he wanted too much dough. He wanted like 25000 a track, and I couldn't afford it. But, uh, but, you know, I guess in total, it gave me an opportunity to open the the clamshell on one of the most mysterious guys in art. And while I say that, I think of Bob Dylan, who the construction of their persona was as much a part of their project as it, as, as was the music. Right. Right. So by maintaining this mask, they, they revealed that they understood the dynamics of, I'd say, the same processes that go into making people 
give their attention and fealty to preachers, politicians, and artists alike. And that if you don't maintain that mysterious mask, you're giving away the power of whatever those platforms offer you to mesmerize and chant and maintain the interest of the public that they shouldn't know what you're like when you leave the stage. Hmm. You know, and, and, and that's why I think Dylan said that about Woody Guthrie, like don't meet your mentors. And, um, yes. You've mentioned a few times, Bob Dylan, and I think we have a shared interest in, in, in Bob Dylan. I want to call the attention of the audience to an article that you wrote that I really enjoyed. And it was one of the things that inspired me to try to interview you. The title of the article, and it's on Newsweek.com, it's called, You're 100% Wrong About Bob Dylan. <laughs> Great piece. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about, this is probably a huge question, but about working with Bob Dylan. Well, you know, I, I, I was included because Don, <laughs> frankly, produced Bob Wright's Nick of Time record, right? Right. And f for those who don't remember, it won the Grammy for Record of the Year and changed Don's life considerably and the life of Was Not Was because from here on out, he was to be regarded as the Vasco, who is it, the fountain of youth for all these older rock stars who thought, hey, maybe he could do the same thing he did for me that he did for Bonnie Raitt. In fact, when we met Dylan in Toronto, the year we were working on some music for the freshman, that Matthew Broderick, Marlon Brando movie, this was Don's hour to finally get his audience with Dylan. And out of the kindness of his heart, he said, come on, man, let's, let's go together. We'll go meet Dylan. And we went to his dressing room before his show at some big outdoor shed in Toronto. And the first thing Dylan asked Don point blank was, so uh, can you do for me what you did for Bonnie Raitt? <laughs> and, you know, he was being a little funny and a little subversive. And, uh, you know, Don played it off. Don is, forget Donald Trump, Don was, is the politician of politicians. He, the reason he survived in this business and been able to, you know, produce Rolling Stones albums without anyone getting killed in the studio during the making of, it's because he is not only a good musician, but he's a master diplomat. He knows how to handle crazy people, right? So when time came and Dylan's camp asked for Don's hand, because we were together that night and I don't know, maybe Don thought it would be fun or something, but he asked me to do it with him. So I wound up this fifth wheel kind of co-producer on the record, but because I didn't have a career to protect necessarily, I could always say the thing that no one else could say because I was this, you know, what I was playing was, a role that is my favorite in literature and in theater, 
I was playing the fool to King Lear. Hmm. Not that Dylan had gone mad yet, as Lear was wont to do by the third, late in the second act, third act. But I was able to say things that no one else could say, whether it was a musical suggestion or, you know, just uh, keeping things cool when we were in between takes or whatever. Because the fact is, at that point, Dylan was doing the Wilburys as well. Right. And he was pretty, he was pretty stretched and he wanted to make a record definitely, but I'm not sure that, I'm not sure. And, and I hesitate to say this because whatever he comes up with is always pretty darn good. But I'm not sure he had what he needed going in to make a great record. It became a study in anguish being there with him and seeing him struggle to get this thing done, especially in a format or a setting to which he was most unused to. And I'll, I'll give you the technical details of that. Back in the day, if you were producing a Dylan record, just like most records you'd make back in the day, you had a bunch of guys in a room, the mics were all over the place, and nothing at the end of the session was isolated so that if you wanted to redo a vocal, you couldn't because the vocal was in everybody's mics or the drums were in the bassist's mic or whatever. You took that live take, one of 11, you know, as the bootleg tape that showed us, there were 40 takes of certain things, and they did it till they got it right. This session, unlike its others, he might have done some of this before, but it was the way Don cut Bonnie Raitt and the way we'd been working for years. Everything was isolated. So when you finish the track, that's when you put the vocal on and you worked on it forever, maybe to get it right, cutting it a line at a time. So to put Bob in that position where he had to post produce his vocals rather than just go out with a band and sing in the moment, responding to what was going on around him, I got to tell you, in a word, he was miserable. He was not a happy camper. This was not how you made records. And so this gave me the opportunity to referee a very difficult moment, which I tell with peril of my life, even though I'll probably never see Bob Dylan again, Anything you say about him, a Dylanologist somehow gets a hold of, will listen to your show, transcribe it, put it in a zine or on the internet, and someday Bob will come up to you and say, yeah, I heard you talking about me on the radio. Like, really? <laughs> How'd you, like, really? Yeah, I, I did an interview with uh, Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune years ago, three in the morning, I swear. And Dylan heard it somehow. He's like, anyway. <laughs> okay, so, so I say this with peril of my life, although I'm sure this is not so revealing. It's, it's no big deal. It was huge for me, and probably Dylan doesn't even remember this. But there we were in the studio, cutting a vocal after all else had been mixed, and now it was time for him to go into some very unromantic space 
a little vocal booth under headphones and play the track and he'd sing along with the track without any of that electricity or spontaneity that had generated those vocals that everyone came to love. Leopard skin pillbox hat, whatever the heck your particular cup of Dylan is, that happens to be mine, but um, where there was all that life in it, that spontaneity, that, you know, giddiness, that joy even, right? So here he is wearing a hoodie with the headphones under it and playback initiates and he starts singing his first take, you know? And he was just kind of feeling himself through it. Uh, You know, it was okay. But he threw the headphones down and he came back in the control room for playback. And as soon as playback finished with him staring off into space, I swear, like his body language was do not come within 500 miles of me at that moment. (laughs) (laughs) And as soon as the playback stops, Don says to him, and I quote, Hey, great vocal, Bob. And Bob suffering no fool said great you thought that was great (laughs) and don again master of the uh (laughs) two-step you know went back a couple and said uh yeah yeah i mean i thought there was some really cool stuff in there i mean we could definitely do another take if you want to but yeah yeah i thought thought there was some really cool stuff there (laughs) silence silence paul deadly stony silence ensues and bob is staring through space god knows he'd probably see neptune from where he sat he was just not in a good place at which point i can't even tell you why i said what i said at that moment except that that's what the fool gets paid by king lear to do (laughs) to say something that is so out of the ballpark and so inappropriate that if all goes well, it'll break this moment's tension and, and we can go back to doing our work, right? <laughs> okay, so you might be wondering, what the hell did Dave say at that moment? And what I said was, and I'll try not to interrupt myself, I'm going to give you this in real time as it happened, okay? <laughs> Great. I say aloud, I said, yeah, Bob, I said, you know, uh, I don't know what it was. Uh, there was something in the air tonight while you were singing, man. I, I, I said, you know, I had a feeling while you were singing that had Al Martino walked in here tonight, the two of you could have created a very special magic together. <laughs> Al Martino. Al Martino. Now, you just responded the way Dylan did, and I'll give you his response in real time. He said, Al Martino. Pause. Al Martino? (laughs) And he finished by saying, Al Martino. Al Martino? Al Martino wouldn't walk into a room unless it had a ceiling fan in it, he said. 
And I and the rest of us were befuddled, like as to the meaning of this enigma of a you know joke. But <laughs> later realized, you know, he was referring to the kind of rooms that Ed Martino would play in, you know, with fake palm trees and ceiling fans. <laughs> and he was being he was being very charitable at the moment, you know, for me having said such an absurd thing at such a past moment. He just cut this crappy vocal. Don had overcomplimented him on it, and we were all sitting staring in space silently. So by replying in a joking manner, he was being very nice, I think, at once, and maybe he was a little grateful that somebody didn't second Don's flattery and say, yeah, Bob, you were amazing, man. So, and that, that's what brought me to back to your question about this Newsweek piece where indeed I had entertained the notion against all principle and against all opinion that Bob Dylan was a lousy singer. You know, that people, even your uncle Joe will imitate him and sing a nasal toneless way how many times can you and they think they're being funny when they don't realize that it was by commission and not omission that Dylan found his voice both both literally and figuratively and that this guy from Minnesota <laughs> this Jewish guy from Minnesota found a sound based on his capacious understanding of full tradition that was in alignment with the highest principles of that form, whether it be Woody Guthrie or, you know, uh, Hank Williams or whatever, that he knew what he was doing when he sounded a little out of pitch or a little out of rhythm or whatever it was, it was chosen. It was artist. It was an artistic choice. So I contrast that style of singing to what people think is a standard for someone being a great singer. And I always use by example, because she's such an easy target, someone like Christina Aguilera, who can torture a note Till it has no more life in it in order to prove only one point listen how great a singer I am mm -hmm. right and your ears as well as your soul at least me is tired by the end of the first verse because she hasn't let a single phrase pass by without her thinking it was in need of elaboration or adulteration and that is firmly against the spirit of, let's say, the more humble folk tradition, where your voice is meant to communicate with people who feel things and think things like you do. You're one of them. You're not some artiste on a pedestal trying to prove how much your vocal lessons cost. So my contention is, that whatever 
rustic roughness you hear around the edges of Bob Dylan, all of it is a choice. And it's what makes him an artist. And it's what makes Christina Aguilera a talented mechanic who would probably be better off. The world would be a better place if she was working on carburetors, not on music. You know, because that's what it rings like. It rings like technique and not expression. And where you can weld the two, technique and expression, and make it an artistic whole, that's the name of the game. That nobody should see the seams between your persona and your artistry. They should seem like one thing. And that's why I hold Dylan and Miles Davis to be the avatars of their respective ages and genres because they both created these personae that communicated more than the notes. I don't know if I was a strange teenager, but when I listened to Miles Davis, I not only reveled in the sound, but I wanted to be Miles Davis. I thought, this guy is the most soulful MFer who ever lived. I, I feel him, you know, and that's what you're going out for. Whether you go to church or the concert hall, you're going there to feel communion. And it has as little to do with musical notes and lyrics or whatever, throw in the pot, horn charts, whatever. You're there to, to be stirred. You know what? Where you can be stirred, shaken, and, and moved, you know, then you're in good hands. And I think Dylan at his best and Miles Davis at his best and you name them, you know, that's what happens on a good night is they know they're responsible for your being either uplifted or, or what, uh, distracted, you know, from, from the mundane the mundane horribleness of your own life if only for an hour if only for two hours i refer anyone else to that newsweek piece where i may have been a little more articulate about these things excellent piece uh and again it's it's on newsweek.com anyone can read that if they'd like i wanted to ask you about the album what up dog ah yep well, you know, it was our third album, and I think in a way it was kind of our premature white album, you know? It was all of our ammo in one weapon, and as fate would have it, it was the time that the world allowed us more effort and energy than anywhere else in our career, and the money, frankly, to make it. We hadn't made any money in the record business up until then, but we were with a beneficent label, Phonogram of London, part of the great Philips Corporation, who had nothing but money because of Dire Straits and Def Leppard at the time. They had money to burn, to throw away, and, and here we come, this scruffy band of white and black maniacs from Detroit, and they had enough money, for better or for worse, to spiff us up, if you will. And so the label paid to redo two of our songs from that album with a very successful producer at the time, 
a guy named Paul O'Duffy, who had been responsible for stuff like Swing Out Sister. Do you remember that stuff, Paul? I don't know that one. I, I think on, they'd fall under the general uh, heading of Brit Soul, right? Okay. So the worst example of which at the time was records by the producers Stock, Aitken, Waterman, Never Gonna Give You Up, Never Gonna Let You Die, Rick Astley, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whether we liked it or not, we were pygmalioned by our label into sounding like a band with far higher aspirations than we'd ever shown. That is, to try to make pop hits and not weird ditties. And so, two songs from What Up Dog, as produced by this Paulo Duffy, Spy in the House of Love and Walk the Dinosaur became big pop hits with quarter-million-dollar videos to go along with them. So all of a sudden, this band that had had kind of this limited success and a kind of cult following for being weird dance music makers had two big, shiny MTV pop hits. So we went to London and we did Top of the Pops and we you know, were on Soul Train and uh, we were on whatever, Arsenio and this and that. It was the last thing we expected and... It wasn't necessarily good for us aesthetically or career-wise because now we were in a position where when we went back in the studio the next time, everyone's anticipation would be, well, give us a couple more of those big hits. Why, why don't you boys? Not only had that never been our intention to be hit makers, which wasn't a bad thing, mind you, you know, we had kids to support at that point and, um, you know, certainly didn't frown upon the royalties when they came in. But the next time we went in the studio, we were a little bit schizophonic, if you will. Like we didn't know who the hell we were or what we were supposed to do. And I say this with some compassion for my partner, Don, by then, he's, his star was rising as a producer as well, right? So here we come off this big record, and he had a schedule full of albums that he was already enlisted to produce. And so whereas What Up Dog took us forever and a day to make, this next record, I think he gave us something like 26 days to start and finish. And that would mean that it would have to be production-lined a little bit, like we'd done with those two songs with O'Duffy, and that everything would be done in a kind of military way. Like the first seven days, we'll be tracking basic tracks with this guy, this keyboardist. I loathe to mention his name, Jeff Lorber. Do you remember Jeff Lorber? Oh, yeah. Like a jazz fusion guy, but he was also you know, kind of a backroom track doctor. He could build you up some tracks and then you put whatever the hell you wanted on top of them. So What Up Dog was a labor of love and was born painfully like a baby in the 11th month. It was not easy going, but it bore the impress of our real striving to do something 
good, you know, forget great, forget hits, but we just, you know, we, we wrote our best songs for that album. And then the follow-up, Are You Okay?, I think to this day shows that less care was put into it, right? Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of the end because it wasn't soon thereafter, long thereafter, that Don produced Bonnie Raitt. At which point, forget about it. He was making enough money that our band became kind of a, you know, a burden and an encumbrance and a not very good paying one to boot compared to where he was at. And then in one of the true twists of fate, I will blame one individual forever for the demise of was not was. And it's that devil from another dimension, Keith Richards. Hmm. Why? Because Don's wife at the time was the head of A&R administration at Virgin Records in the U.S., where they had just signed the Rolling Stones. And they needed a producer, that is a referee to get in the studio between Mick and Keith, who forever were at each other's throats for one reason or another. And that turned out to be her husband, Don, my partner. And without going into the gory details, between the fact that Don was way too busy to you know, really devote himself to our band anymore. Being around Keith Richards is an almost lethal enterprise. Like you could literally die by being his pal and confederate because he lives a dangerous lifestyle. I'm not sure today, but he certainly did back then. Mm. And he almost finished off my erstwhile old friend and partner by by example, Don followed his example and it nearly destroyed him. So by the time rolled around that Don had weathered that storm and defeated it, kind of come out of the throes of uh, bad behavior, eh, you know, the writing was on the wall. We hadn't been a really active touring band or recording band for a while, but we did do one more record for record desk called Boo back i don't even know when now but it would have been two, 2008 but, okay so but by then it was kind of you know an afterthought or picking up the pieces sweeping them up into a, a heap and putting them out and do you know it goes back to what i was saying before that and this is something that i really live by to demystify art to demystify genius is to agree that all it takes is slavish devotion to whatever your discipline, art form, science, whatever it is. And if you put in those hours like Einstein did, remember Einstein was a poor student early on, but once he defined his interest and put his nose to the grindstone, everything else followed. That's when genius happens, is when you never take your eye off the ball. Whether you're Ted Williams, Ted Williams, you know, used to swat around wadded up newspapers with a with a tech you know, with a math book in his home. Tiger Woods, whose father 
ran his life like a military camp, but a, with a golf club instead of a rifle in his hand. And Michael Jackson, the same, who from the earliest age was raised to be a warrior, a musical warrior, because he had no choice. His father would have slapped the living hell out of him otherwise. So whether by dint of environment, circumstance, there's certainly no genetic role. Had Mozart been mistaken in the maternity ward for another kid and sent home to a painter's home, we might recognize him today as a great painter because there's no gene for musical talent. The reason Mozart became what he became is because his father was a professional musician who knew the value, and I mean literally, capital V value, of having a prodigious child who you could escort onto stage at a royal ball and have him or her play the violin or the piano in a means that were way beyond their years. He was the Michael Jackson of his day, Mozart. But without that environment to impress upon these kids that they were going to either perform or go to bed hungry or be smacked or whatever, there is no Mozart. There's no Michael Jackson. There's no Tiger Woods. So I guess what I'm saying with respect to our humble career is that once you take your hand off the wheel, you run into a lamppost, whether it's in art or science, it's devotion moment to moment to moment to the task at hand till you have either the taste or the good sense to know that you've run out of gas and that you're done and you have nothing else to say. And I would say that's what kept Miles Davis to go back to my standard so interesting is just when you thought you had him down, he moved somewhere else. And whether you thought it was better or worse than what he did before that you'd been so in love with, he didn't want to be that guy anymore. And he'd have rather killed himself than been the Miles Davis, or as we were saying, Stravinsky of the past. So, People ask me now, you know, do you miss it? You know, you, you know, it must have been so much fun, et cetera, et cetera. I do. It was fun and it was alluring. But more fun than that was that you had orders on your desk for ephemera, for the stuff of your imagination, for, for what was in your heart and mind. And that when people would pay you to produce more of that was literally like the greatest thing in the world, not because of the money or what could buy you, but because they paid you to do what felt demanded the best out of you. And when that moment passes and the world doesn't give a damn who you are or what you can do anymore, then your time is up. And even though I still write songs and make music, I don't do it entertaining the notion that we would ever gain the world's attention again. We might serve our fast diminishing fan base, or, you know, people who may be dying off as we speak. But art, like science, 
is a full-time job. Unless you keep doing it, you have no right to to the stage or the uh, you know the attention of the world. And so I'm nostalgic and proud of what we did, but you know it's sort of like uh, you know an athlete like Ali trying to come back at the end of his career and fight one more fight when logic and wisdom dictate that you just hang it up and, you know, look at your scrapbook. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything in the horizons for you in in any sphere? Journalism? Music? Anything? You know what? I think I'm a writer at heart. You know, I make music because you can make it alone now. And so with a computer and with the interest and energy to do it, I'm making music constantly. And then I'll get contacted by someone and say, you know, we need a track for this or that. And I've got a thousand of them now. You know, I mean, I just made them all the time for the past 30 years. And the older and the more you know, primitive the technology I had, that's more in favor now than it ever was. You know, when 80s music and analog synthesizers enjoyed a boom in the early 2000s, I thought, God, really? I've got a thousand tracks like that, you know? So, you know, I had a track up for uh, Gwen Stefani was considering cutting it a couple of years ago when she was doing her solo album, but she didn't like the lyric which I didn't write, which is a funny thing because I'm a lyricist, but frankly, when it comes time for me to write a song for Gwen Stefani, I'm a little out of my element. So I let my publisher, which was Sony Music at the time, just take my track and farm it out to another writer, and they put a lyric, a sound-alike Gwen Stefani demo vocal on it. And to me, it sounded like a hit, and I should have had literally an fMRI. I should have had my head examined to think that all will work out and that she will cut this track and that I'll make 500 Gs or something like that. Because at the time, I was a little drunk on the prospect, and I thought, God, this might just work out. But here's the beauty part. Even though I will continue to make music, I do write beyond just journalism. You know, I keep writing songs and have projects in the works for something you'd call either a dark musical or a kind of opera. But here's the good news, and I think this is a good summation point. We were lucky enough to enjoy a modicum of success in the pre-streaming era. Right, Paul? Right. At a time when your radio play, your TV, your mo- movie licensing, etc., could fuel your career to the extent that you could keep living and making music and not go broke or, or starve. Today, that's different. If we had been the same band in this era with the kind of success we had, and had to rely on streaming royalties versus radio royalties and record sales, we'd be literally living, you know, hand to mouth or homeless somewhere. 
So I tell people, not only we were we lucky enough to have a career, but we were lucky enough to do it in the analog era when they actually made physical objects to sell that were played on what we now call terrestrial radio, right? <laughs> right. And as a coda to that, I always had this guy who wrote, uh, I forget his name now. I, lo- I love the track, though. All About the Bass by Megan Trainer. Yeah. That guy, I believe he testified before Congress when it came to one of these digital royalty forums where they were trying to suss out just how well or poorly music makers were being rewarded or denied for their efforts. And he used this figure where he said, yeah, all about the bass, got 70 million streams, and my digital royalties for that were $6,000, right? So this is a way symbolically of representing the plight of the modern recording artist, songwriter, and producer who's been left out of the, the fat part of the business where you can sustain yourself, if not enrich yourself, because the major labels made deals with the streaming services, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, etc., so that they are now, it's sort of like the music business was until the 1970s, you know, when rock and roll exploded and people got lawyers. But before that, if you were Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf or Little Richard or the Ink Spots or whoever, part of being a recording artist meant you were going to get your ass ripped off 80 cents on the dollar and that you'd never get a fair accounting of your royalties. So the digital era, which has brought us a lot of blessings and ease in our lives, has also destroyed the ability to make a livelihood in a business that used to reward you for having a hit record. And mind you, Taylor Swift's not complaining, nor is uh, Kendrick Lamar. And you know what? I think they deserve every dollar they get. You know, they've seized the world's attention at this moment. And even despite the diminished ability to bank royalties off of your work, they're so popular that they can, you know, do pretty darned well. But for everyone else who's in the business now, who I I will say music business has become an oxymoron at this point. It's there's music and then there's business, but the twain do not meet as much as they did. And, and frankly, I don't think a band like ours enjoying what, you know, success we had could imagine doing it again in the world that we live in now. And is it worth it that I can go in my car and listen to any Miles Davis, Bob Dylan, or Taylor Swift track whenever I want, play it as many times as I want? I'll leave that for your listeners to uh, answer. I, I do like the convenience and ease of being able to tune in any music on earth, 10 bucks a month, which I pay Spotify. But I know that money isn't making its way back to Captain Beefheart when I play Captain Beefheart, you know. Yeah. Is he still alive, by the way? He is not. No, he is not. God bless. 
a great inspiration to us back in the day. He and Cap and Frank Zappa. Well, for anyone listening, I'm just going to leave it to you. Kind of. Yep. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Well, you know, for anyone who noticed us passing by, you know, I think when you're when you're an artist, you know, it's it's easy to be missed, and the few people who take notice of you, you feel like it's a love letter from the universe that anyone bothered to pause, let the needle drop on the vinyl or the uh, bits and bytes of the CD to spool by or now stream by, that if you arrested anybody's attention for a moment and enriched or diverted them from tedium or the angst of their own lives, that you've served a purpose no more exalted than a windmill grinding wheat to make a loaf of bread. That you know, you provided somebody with a little spiritual protein to get through their day or their week or their month. And um as such I'm grateful for having had that and for having the experience I would say of demystifying the allure of being a public artist, which is way overrated, you know, it doesn't deserve the exaltation, you know, that people accord their public figures. It's, it's more in this, it's more public service than it is anything else. And the limited utility that you have while you have a bit of the world's attention, you look back and you think, how lucky was I to even get a piece of that world where you could feel the satisfaction of going out and playing a song and seeing 10 people in the front who bothered to get to the front to sing along with all of the words you dreamed up in your bedroom six months prior. It's a minor miracle and one that I'll never stop being grateful for. Well, thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, my pleasure, indeed. Thank you for calling. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed talking to you. Vice versa. All right. <laughs> Until next time, thank you very much. Ciao. Appreciate it, Paul. Take care. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>